Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi. Welcome to Finders Grievers, a happy-ish podcast about sad things. I'm your host, Shohana Sharman. So, first of all, I just want to start by saying that this episode is going to be a bit different from the rest. Typically, I would be interviewing a guest on this podcast, asking them about their thoughts and experiences around grieving. But today, I don't have a guest. It's just me, my mic, and I. I'll explain why. So, I've thought about doing this podcast for years. I've talked to people about this idea for years. I've met with super important industry folks who know what they're doing and jotted down pages of notes and walked home after with my mind just bursting full of potential. And yet, by the time I got home and tucked myself into bed, I knew I wouldn't actually do any of the things because I couldn't. I wasn't there yet. It took a really long time, like a really long time for me to start this because I wanted it to be perfect because this has to do with my mother and anything I do that's in relation to her has to be perfect. I I know I'm fully aware of how unreasonable that may sound to some. I know I'm in therapy and I'm still working through some of these things, but the pressure I put on myself to make this perfect kept me from starting on it for years. And the funny thing is, even though I eventually started this, it wasn't because suddenly that pressure went away. It's still there, it's just now presenting itself differently. Because the pressure of this podcast has to be perfect turned into the first episode has to be perfect. And that's why I'm here right now sitting in my bed on a quiet Tuesday night in April, asking myself if I'm doing any of this right. For the last four months, I've had the immense pleasure and privilege of sitting down with some of the most talented human beings I know and discussing one of the most difficult experiences, if not the most difficult experience of their lives, losing and grieving a loved one. These conversations have been eye-opening. Each conversation is so special. Each person's story is so one-of-a-kind, and each one is so beautiful in its own way. And many times, these were not easy conversations to have. There were times when we choked on our words and even cried because, you know, years later, it still hurts. 
But the thing is, even though these conversations were difficult, I had it kind of easy because I was just there as the host. You know, I was there as the interviewer to guide the conversation, to listen to the story and understand and find the underlying themes and dig up some beautiful nuggets of knowledge. You know, even though I felt the same feelings my guests were describing, I could always hold on to a little bit of myself because it's not my story. I'm here to listen and understand. So this episode that you are listening to right now is the last episode I recorded after I had already spoken to all of the amazing guests for this season of the podcast, after I had all of the guest recordings neatly organized into folders, labeled in chronological order, after I had all of the artwork done and the social media handles set up and scheduling completed, I did it all. I recorded this episode after I ran out of excuses to avoid recording this episode. Because for me, this is the hardest episode to record even though in some ways it should be the easiest. It's just me talking. Because sitting with my guests' stories was hard at times, but sitting with my own story is a different kind of pain. And look, I've done all the therapy. I've read all the Instagram motivational quotes. I've tried all the meditation tapes. I've done the work, and in many ways, I have healed from that work. I can function in the world because I've been able to heal. I can talk to friends and family and coworkers because I've been able to heal. I can discuss loss and grief with people without imploding because I've been able to heal. But sitting with the idea of grief as a concept feels very different than sitting with the unfairness of a world without my mother. And in this episode, that's what I have to sit with and try to unpack some of the things that go with it. So yeah, this episode will be a little different from the rest. And just so we're clear, I'm choosing to do this episode. No one is forcing me. It's important to me that anyone listening to this podcast understands where I'm at. Because grief is a lifelong journey, and my grief around losing my mother, is still evolving. It has already evolved in the short time that she has been gone, and it will continue to evolve. I will grieve my mother until the day I die, and I don't want anyone listening to think that I have it all figured out, because truly, I do not. My original plan was to write a script for this episode, like something really beautifully crafted and polished that just tells the perfect story of my perfect grief. I was going to write the script, and I even asked a friend of mine if I could pay her to proofread it for me to make sure it's really perfect. And she said, yes, of course. And I said, okay, cool. I'll send it to you this weekend. And that was three weeks ago. I never sent her anything didn't even message her to tell her why not. And she was smart enough to know not to ask. God bless her. I couldn't write that perfect script. I tried and just nothing came out. And I felt so guilty, like, oh my God, this is so important to me. Why can't I do it? Why can't I write this small thing and get it over with? Why am I so lazy? Why am I like this? And it took weeks, weeks 
for me to work through that anxiety and guilt and shame to realize that I couldn't write it because that's not how grieving works. It's not because I'm lazy. It's because there is no such thing as the perfect script for understanding my grief about losing my mother. There is nothing polished. There is nothing more imperfect than my grief. There are elements of grieving my mother that are, I don't know, like beautiful feels cheesy, but that's the first word that comes to mind. There are parts of missing her that are warm and wonderful. But there are other parts of it that are just the worst. And I don't know how to make those parts polished. I don't think it's even possible, really. Because the thought of taking my painfully vivid memories of my mother, of how she looked and how she talked and how her skin smelled and how she took up space in my world, trying to capture all of that on a flat white piece of paper is impossible. And it felt dishonest to try to write that perfectly sparkly diamond script about grieving her. Because anyone who has experienced loss will tell you that that's bullshit. It's bullshit. It only happens like that on TV, not in real life. So after all of that, here I am, recording this very long introduction instead, and asking myself, where to begin? I don't know, I guess we just have to start. My mom's name was Hasina Sultana Bulu. Everyone called her Bulu. She was born in Narangonj, Bangladesh on January 5th, 1957. She was the fourth of seven children, and she was by far the feistiest one of them all. She was the disciplinarian among her brothers and sisters. Even though she was the middle child, she would be the one telling her older and younger siblings to clean up after themselves. She tried her best to be a good Muslim praying five times a day, and also encouraging her siblings to do the same. She took good care of herself. She wasn't vain, necessarily, but her appearance was important to her, and she made a point of always being presentable. She would save whatever little pocket money she had to buy nice soaps or skin creams. She made sure her saris were wrinkle-free. She put her long, curly black hair into a neat braided bun, and she always wore a small red bindi to tie the whole look together. She was borderline obsessed with having a clean home, and she made sure to pass that obsession down to her daughter. She was a pioneer in many ways. She was the first woman in her hometown of Narangonj to leave home and move to the capital city, Dhaka, for university. I know this probably doesn't sound like a big deal in Canada in 2021, but in 1970s Bangladesh, this was unheard of for a young single woman. She was a feminist before that word even existed in her society. She was always a passionate advocate for women's education and their right to work. She had a strong moral compass and was a fearless defender of right versus wrong, no matter how difficult the consequences. She had this quiet strength inside her. She was never rude to anyone, but you knew from the moment she walked into a room not to mess with her. I always thought it was because she was a teacher. She was very good at using her teacher voice with people. I'm sure she used that teacher voice with my brother and I too, but I don't think it really worked the same on us because to us she was just Amu. I remember just 
always knowing. No one ever had to say it. I just always knew that my mom is a really strong, independent woman. She never took anyone's shit. She never even took my dad's last name. When my brother and I were born, she didn't give us her or my dad's last name. Instead, my parents gave us individual last names, as if to say, there you go, you're your own person. Of course, this got confusing later when we would try to get through airport security together as a family with four different last names on our passports, but I digress. My mom was a beacon of strength. After she married my dad, his family tried to get her to stop working and become a stay-at-home wife. She refused, and she continued working until the very end. She was incredibly hardworking, and she juggled so many different responsibilities. She worked a full-time job as a professor of political science, and she raised my brother and I pretty much single-handedly because my dad was away for work most of my childhood. And she supported her family and friends and colleagues through thick and thin. She was always doing And she was unshakable. She was just one of those people that seemed to stand tall in her own choices and actions. She always spoke her mind, which delighted and sometimes terrified those who knew her. Her taste in clothing and her general aesthetic was impeccable. She was stylish, but never trying too hard to be. She was a very talented singer. And she was an amazing cook. She hate-watched every cooking show she could find, She loved talking shit about the chefs on TV, even as she was writing down everything they were saying. Her love language was acts of service, and every single person who met her felt her love through her food. She made hands down the best black lentil soup in the whole wide world. And she was the best mom. She knew that my brother and I were very different people, and she tried to understand us and parent us accordingly. She was strict, but she was also unconditionally loving and protective. She was our safety net. Over the years, our family moved around, and my brother and I changed schools and countries, but we could always fall back into our mom and her kitchen table full of our favorite dishes. She kept grade one school photos of both of us in her wallet, even when we grew into our 20s and 30s. She was the best mom. I was born and raised in Taka, Bangladesh. Growing up, it felt like our family life was simple, or at least my childhood was anyway. My dad wasn't around much. He traveled for work a lot. My mom also worked, but she stayed home and took care of us. I like to think I was the easy kid for my mom, even though she loved to remind us that I was definitely the fussier baby. But I was a goody two-shoes. My whole world revolved around homework and TV and playing with my brother. It was the good life. But as a kid, I was also very shy, and I struggled with a lot of anxiety. I had a really hard time falling asleep at night. I would lay awake in my bed and stare at the ceiling every night, and I would spiral, like, oh god, I can't sleep tonight. If I can't sleep tonight, I won't be able to wake up on time tomorrow morning. If I can't wake up tomorrow morning, I won't be able to go to school tomorrow. If I can't go to school tomorrow, I won't be able to take that science quiz. If I can't take that science quiz, I won't score above 95 in the class. If I can't score above 95 in the class, I won't come first place this year. If I don't come first place this year, I won't get the scholarship next year. If I don't get the scholarship next year, I won't get into college. If I don't get into college, I won't make it to med school. If I don't go to med school, I'm going to be a doctor. If I'm not a doctor, what will I do with my life? Oh my God, will I go to prison? Wait, what? Will I die? Is this the end of me? Oh my God. I regularly gave myself panic attacks laying in my own bed. And when it got too much, I cried. And I dragged myself out of bed and crawled over to my mom. 
she was always so annoyed at first, like, why can't you just sleep? And I just stood there and cried until she let me lay down next to her. I'd be her little spoon. She'd put her hand on my back and ask me to count backwards from 100. 100. 99. 98. 97. 96. 95. 94. I'd be asleep by 78. When I was 11 years old, my dad landed his dream job working for an international organization in Ethiopia. And our family moved from Taka to Addis Ababa. It's funny because looking back, I realized this was a huge change for our family. But at the time, I just thought of it as a fun trip. I remember seeing my mom being sad about this move. She had to quit her job and leave her family and basically her whole world behind to move to a foreign place. I remember seeing her crying and that was really unsettling because my mom was so strong. She never cried. I remember just feeling so weird. Why is she acting like this? I didn't know. I didn't bother asking. I was just excited to ride an airplane for the first time. Life in Ethiopia was different. My brother and I started to going to the international school in Addis Ababa. My mom stayed home while my dad, my brother, and I left for work or school every morning. My mom spent her days reading or watching the news or cooking or praying. Again, I didn't know this at the time, but looking back, I realized she was lonely. She made some friends in the local Bangladeshi community, but it wasn't the same. And this was 2002 in Ethiopia. Like, cell phones weren't really a thing yet, and international calling was expensive. So she couldn't call her family in Bangladesh, and she missed them. Once a week, our family would visit the internet cafe in Addis Ababa to call home. I wish I had paid more attention to how my mom looked and acted during this time. We'd go to restaurants or take family vacations and trips, and I don't want to believe that she was sad during all that time or that she missed her old life in Bangladesh, but I think that might be true. I think she missed what she had. In the spring of 2004, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. I was 13 years old at the time. I just remember feeling in the dark a lot of the time while my parents were having important adult conversations. My dad arranged for my mom to go stay with her sister in Frankfurt, Germany, where the cancer treatment options were better. And just like that, my mom was gone. It was weird. I'm not sure if I fully understood what was happening. I just missed her. Without her around, our living room was a mess, and I remember feeling really guilty about not cleaning up more. But my brother and I finished up the last few months of the school year without my mom around, and that summer, my dad dropped the two of us off in Frankfurt to stay with my mom while she finished up chemo and radiation. The first time I saw her in Frankfurt, I was shocked. She had had a mastectomy, and the side effects from chemo had made her lose so much weight and all her hair had fallen out. It was like she aged 10 years in just a few months. And yet, the moment she spoke, it was like we were right back home. But still, that summer was a really strange time for our family. My brother had just finished high school in Ethiopia and was getting ready to come to Canada for university in the fall. 
My dad was transferring jobs and wasn't sure where he was going to land next. My mom was going to stay in Frankfurt for the rest of the year for treatment. And my next move was a question mark at this point. (laughs) Was I going to stay with my mom in Frankfurt and lose a year of schooling because I didn't speak German? Or was I going to move with my dad to wherever he was headed next year and hope that they had a good school there? My dad wasn't happy with either of these options and started talking about boarding school. My mom didn't like this, but she went along with it. And pretty quickly, we were googling prestigious New England prep schools a la Gilmore Girls. I applied and was accepted to the Loomis Chafee School. I was excited at first that I got accepted into a fancy school and would be moving to the dreamland that was America. Holy wow, it felt surreal. But as the end of summer slowly rolled in, I started realizing what this actually meant. I would have to live in America all alone. Suddenly, I was terrified. What if the American kids in boarding school don't like me? My mom and my brother sensed my anxiety, but they didn't really have a whole lot to offer in terms of help. And my mom was still not happy about me going off to boarding school on my own. She never said it out loud, but you could tell. Up until that point, I had been her baby chicken, the goody two-shoes, the quiet kid that liked to read a lot. She was worried about me being all alone by myself in big bad America with big bad American punk kids. She wanted to keep me close, to protect me. But she couldn't because that would mean pausing my education until her health improved. And she felt a lot of guilt about this. I didn't realize this at the time, but years later, she would tell me about this guilt. How ashamed she felt that her body was letting her down and keeping her from taking care of her children. At the end of the summer, my dad came to Frankfurt to take my brother and I to North America. We packed up our bags and said goodbye to my mom. At the airport, I remember looking back and seeing her hunched over on her niece's shoulder, just crying. Eighteen years later, this moment is still etched into my memory. It's the first time I remember seeing how helpless my mom must have felt. It was disorienting to see my once unshakable mom like that. I quickly turned my head back and kept walking towards my next destination. We landed in JFK the next day, and my dad dropped me off with a family friend in New York. A week later, I started at the Loomis Chafee School in Windsor, Connecticut. Boarding school was actually kind of great. I mean, my first couple of days on campus were terrifying. But after a week, the fear went away, and I loved my new freedom. It was like living in a big house with all of your friends. It was the best. The faculty lived upstairs, and every Saturday night, we would hang out with the cool teachers who would make us nachos and let us watch the really dirty episodes of Law & Order SVU. I had a landline phone in my room, and my mom called me twice every day, once in the morning to ask me what I was having for breakfast, and once at night to ask me what I had for lunch and dinner, and if I had finished my homework. My friends thought it was weird that my mom called so often, but it didn't bother me. I kind of liked the routine. As the years went by, though, I became more and more comfortable with my freedom and less and less enthusiastic about these phone calls. But again, they were a routine checkpoint in my day, and that was that. Eventually, my mom finished treatment and moved to be with my dad. My dad had moved to Bangkok, Thailand at this point. 
I would visit my parents in the summers, wherever on the map they happened to be. Sometimes Thailand, sometimes Sudan, sometimes Canada. My dad had a ward document printed out with his current home and work address and phone number, and every time we would see each other, he would give me an updated version for my records. Constant change is also a constant. I graduated from high school in 2007. My family flew to Connecticut for my graduation, and afterwards I packed up my bags and moved to Toronto, Canada with my brother and my mom, where I was going to start university in the fall. My dad was going to stay in Thailand for his work, while my mom, brother, and I would all be together in Toronto. This move was rough, because it quickly became very clear that boarding school had changed me a lot more than anyone thought. I had gotten used to not having to answer to anyone, and suddenly moving back home with my conservative Muslim mother was proving to be quite a challenge. I was 17 years old, and it was the first time I was truly rebelling, and my mom and I constantly butted heads about every little thing. It took a couple of months, maybe years, for us to really find our peace. During this time, my mom mostly stayed at home, but she was always itching to work. She felt Toronto had more to offer than Addis Ababa or Frankfurt, so she started taking ESL classes to improve her English. She would pack a sandwich for lunch and a travel mug full of tea every morning and take the bus to go sit in a classroom with all of her international friends, and they would learn common English phrases and quirky Canadian facts. She also started expanding her horizons elsewhere. Early in her career in Bangladesh, she had started as a kindergarten teacher, and she loved working with kids. So here in Toronto, she found a daycare near our house and started volunteering there a couple times a week. She was happy. She missed my dad and wanted him to move to Canada, but he couldn't leave his job behind. He wanted her to move to be with him, but she didn't want to leave us behind. So they compromised. He would visit Toronto a few times a year, and she would visit him in Bangkok in the winter. My mom had a variety of regular doctor appointments, and once I learned how to drive, I took her to these appointments. Over the next decades, these drives became my favorite way to spend time with my mom. Because it was just me and mom time, something that she and I didn't really have a lot of before this. We made a whole day out of these doctor's visits. I would take the day off work, we would go to her doctor's appointment, then go do groceries, then stop by her friend's house on the way home, just... A fun day of good, clean mother-daughter time. It was on one of these fun days in the summer of 2013 when we learned that the cancer had returned. So, here we go again. She had a second mastectomy a few weeks later and started chemo and radiation that summer. After about a year of treatment, she was cancer-free again. Until the summer of 2016. This time, it was lung cancer. Stage four. The doctors gave us six to eight months. When she was diagnosed this third time, she didn't want to fight it. She said she was too tired. I remember going to the hospital after work the day she was diagnosed. When I walked into her room, she looked at me and said, This is the last time. No more, Ma. We all cried. We were all so fucking tired. But after a few days, my dad managed to talk my mom into accepting treatment. 
She started chemo right away. She had to have fluid removed from her lungs every 10 days so that she could breathe. She lost her hair, her appetite, and slowly her mobility too. It was painful. Our family from around the world came to visit us that year. She was happy to have her sisters and her niece nearby. That Thanksgiving, we had a big family dinner. She was tired, but smiling. Her mobility got worse and worse over time. She needed help going for walks. She needed help taking a shower or going to the bathroom. Eventually, she could no longer take the stairs up to her bedroom on the second floor of her house. So my dad and my brother set up two small children's beds downstairs in the living room. One for her and one for me. My bed was the little spoon. Sometimes, after the lights were off, she'd ask me what I did that day. One night, I woke up to the sound of her crying in the middle of the night. I asked her what's wrong, and she said she really needed to go to the bathroom, but she didn't want to wake me because she knew how much I needed to sleep. My memories from this time start to get blurry at parts, because it's painful. The new year rolled around. She wasn't getting better, only worse. My dad started looking into alternative treatment options. Maybe we could fly her to Germany again. Maybe we could take her to the States. Maybe we could try a different doctor. Something had to work. Nothing seemed to work. On March 4, 2017, I picked up the phone in our family home in Toronto and dialed 911. At some point that afternoon, my mom had slowly slipped into a coma. She had been fighting the disease for eight months. She was tired. None of us knew it was a coma. We thought she was asleep. The paramedics came and we rushed her to the ER. And for the next seven days, we stood by my mom's side and watched her slowly die. We watched her become less and less of herself. We watched as she became a child again. That week, I fed her, I bathed her, I changed her soiled diapers, I sat next to her on the hospital bed and whispered prayers. I held her hands while she was unconscious and just kept saying I love you over and over again, knowing that she couldn't hear me. That didn't matter. She slipped in and out of the coma, so she would wake up for a couple of hours here and there. When she was awake, she was very paranoid that the doctors and nurses were plotting against her. She was convinced that they were trying to poison her. So she refused to take her medication because she thought it would kill her. And again, she wasn't like herself. She became violent. And she'd throw tantrums whenever she would see one of the doctors or nurses. And she'd yell at us for letting them come near her. It was surreal. It wasn't my mom. But it was. I'd pull the attending nurse outside and ask her to give me the pills that my mom needed to take. I'd crush them up and mix it into a glass of orange juice and just deal with it. Around 9 a.m. on March 11, 2017, I lay next to my mom on her hospital bed. I was her little spoon. I kissed her goodbye. 
She passed away in her sleep an hour later, surrounded by her family. What comes next is still surreal. My dad and my brother got busy with the paperwork of death, dealing with all the things that needed to be done. And I got busy crying and fainting. The funeral was a blur. I remember snippets, you know, going to the mosque, sitting for prayers, crying. I remember seeing her corpse and feeling like I was having an out-of-body experience. I remember people saying things to me, condolences, but I couldn't really register any words. It was all just sound. Everything felt too loud and too crowded and too overwhelming. I didn't want any of this. I just wanted my mom back. We flew to Bangladesh later that week to bury her body next to her father's as she had wished. We came back to Toronto six weeks later to our house that used to be just my mom and I, but is now my dad and I instead. It was the loneliest I've ever felt. My safety net was gone. I barely recognized who I was during that time. I felt like I aged ten years in just a few months. Every time I looked in the mirror, I saw a version of myself I didn't know very well. It's the version of me that I now see every morning, the version of me with the dead mom. I've gotten used to her now. But at the time, I kept coming back to that over and over again. Hey, your mom's dead. What are you doing? Your mom's dead. What are you doing? Your mom's dead. I spent the first six months waiting for her to come back from some imaginary long trip. And when she didn't, I had a meltdown. I felt still and numb on the outside, but like a hurricane on the inside. I cried multiple times every day, often in public. I spent countless hours scanning my memories of the last year to figure out what I could have done differently. What could we have done to keep her alive? I started drinking a lot. I did hurtful things to people that I'm not proud of. I put myself in harm's way. I felt out of control and I didn't care. Nothing mattered. My mom was dead. Nothing else mattered. I got a lot of advice that year. People said things to me like, time heals all wounds. Better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all. My favorite one was, the first year is the hardest. I heard that phrase over and over again, and I believed it. I built up this idea in my head that I just had to survive the first year. I just had to make it past the checkpoints, the first birthday, the first Eid, the first family trip without her, the first anniversary. I convinced myself that if I just made it past these firsts, I'd be fine. In no time, I'd be a totally normal, well-adjusted, emotionally stable adult, happily laughing away with friends like the diversity hire in a yogurt commercial. Well, fuck me. It's been four years, and here I am. I think about her constantly. I carry her in my heart everywhere I go. Last year, I was in a subway station running to a comedy show after work. I was rushing down the stairs to catch the westbound train 
when I saw a woman on the other side climbing up the stairs. I couldn't see her face. All I saw was a deep blue winter jacket that my mom used to wear and a head full of wavy salt and pepper hair. And for a second, just one impossibly long second, I thought it was my mom. The woman looked up, and it wasn't my mom. I knew it couldn't be. But for that one perfect second in the middle of a crowded subway station, I was home again. When my mom passed away, my therapist told me to write down everything I was thinking and feeling to help understand my own grief. But again, the idea of taking my strikingly vivid memories of my mom and putting it on a flat white piece of paper seemed impossible. When I did try to write, especially on important milestones like her birthday or my parents' wedding anniversary, what poured out was just pain from a festering wound. I was just grieving. Grief is the loneliest feeling in the world. It's devastating and isolating beyond words because you can't explain the pain to those who have never felt it. It makes you feel like an alien who can never connect with another human being ever again. Except for the other hidden aliens in the room like you. In the aftermath of my mom's death, I found my fellow aliens. Other comedians who have also experienced loss. It was love at first cry, and it is the connection I found with these people that kept me going that year. As the years passed, my grief evolved, and is still evolving. But I kept thinking about this idea of the isolation of grief and the connection in humor. In 2019, I decided to take this idea of grief and connection and create a dark sketch comedy review called Dead Parent Society. Our goal was to take some of the taboo out of grief and realize that we're not alone no matter how much it feels like it, and that if we look, we might even find some light and laughter in the aftermath of tragedy. It's not an attempt to make light of death, but instead to honor and find humor in all parts of human mortality, the parts that we're comfortable with, and the parts that we can learn to get better at. We thought that putting these intensely intimate parts of ourselves on stage would not be for everyone, but the reaction from audiences and critics alike blew us away. We were critically acclaimed and won an Audience Choice Award at the Toronto Sketch Comedy Festival in March 2020. Then, the world shut down, and we all entered a period of collective loss and grieving what used to be. And now here we are in 2021. And here I am, still talking about grief. In the years since my mom passed, I've wondered whether, in many ways, my grief is self-indulgent. Because really, I'm just sitting alone with my own thoughts. The person isn't here, it's just me. It's me and my grief. I'm so obsessed with it. I even made a whole damn show about it. Are you kidding me? That's so selfish. And then I remember every time that year when I felt like I had to be okay. Every time I hid in the bathroom to give myself a quick cry before coming back to the dinner table. Every time I was on the highway alone in my car bawling my eyes out. Every time I stepped off the stage and high-fived a bunch of people and said, Great set! before coming home to a cold, empty house without her. 
Every time I'd sit at my desk at work and open up a PowerPoint and start fidgeting around with some small formatting thing and bite the inside of my lip to keep my eyes from welling up, and the only thought going through my mind over and over and over again was I'm trying, it's not working. And I asked myself, who told me I had to do these things? Whose comfort was I prioritizing? Why did I give a shit if someone thought I was sad because I so obviously was? Who taught me I had to hide my grief? No one. Not explicitly. But you know, you pick up on things. Finders Grievers is a podcast about the universally felt yet rarely discussed experience of grieving. It is my ongoing mission to shed light on grief and loss. It's inescapable, and I'm tired of living in a society that teaches us that we have to run from it or hide it. Grief connects us to the most basic truth about our common humanity. Everyone you know has lost a loved one at some point in their lifetime. So why don't we talk about death outside of hospitals or funerals or therapy? Why have we marked these designated spaces to unpack our grief in hushed tones? No hushed tones here. Each week, I'll be sitting down with a guest, writers, comedians, artists, to discuss love, loss, and everything in between. I'm not an expert, and I won't pretend to be. In these conversations, we won't have all the answers. Sometimes we may have no answers. That's okay. Sometimes we'll laugh. Sometimes we'll even cry a little bit. Both are allowed. Being a full human experiencing the full range of human emotions, very much allowed here. So, come back in two weeks and listen to some grievers chatting about their grief. It'll be fun, I promise. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram at Finders Grievers. That's it, I think. I'm sure I'm forgetting something. And I'm sure I'll listen back to this in a few weeks and cringe at half the things I've said here. I'm sure I won't get everything right. That's okay. It's okay to be imperfect and evolving. In fact, it's the most human thing to do. My best friend said I should do a part two of this episode sometime in the future because my grief is imperfect and it will evolve. I haven't decided if I'll actually do it yet. We'll see, I guess. It's Mother's Day this weekend. If this day is hard for you, I see you. I'm going to spend the day baking a cake and watering my plants and probably crying a whole bunch. I encourage you to do whatever it is your heart desires and know that you are allowed and you are loved. Thank you for listening. I'll see you in two weeks.